We are given one life, full of billions of small and large decisions, to be somebody, to change, to be kind, to give hope, to become a better person, and to leave a lasting impact on this planet. It is a decision to be made every single day while your heart is still beating. We've made our decision. Absence of clothing. Atheist and science-based apparel and merchandise. Donating 50% of our profits to charity. Look good and feel good, without God. Check us out at absenceofclothing.com and find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest for discount codes and other sweet swag. Speaking of discount codes and sweet swag, why don't you head on over to absenceofclothing.com, type in the promo code EVILTWINS, and you will get 10% off. Not only will you get 10% off, but you're going to do something good for the world. Please give back, people. Hey, Brad. What's up? I know you're really getting into this whole beer thing now, aren't you? A little. Well, Old Town Brewing has done something amazing. What's that? They are the gold medal winners at the Great American Brew Festival in 2015. Wow, that's pretty impressive. They've created a beer called Shanghai IPA. Shanghai? Shanghai. Okay. It refers to the tunnels underneath the uh, Old Town Brewing residence in Old Town Portland. Nice. So take a sip of this bad boy. <sighs> that's pretty damn good. Do you like notes of floral? I like notes of floral. Citrus? It's pretty good. What about grapefruit? Nah. Well, this lightly sweet, heavily hopped beer is the one for you then, minus the grapefruit. Cool. So why don't you go ahead and go over to Old Town Brewing, check out their beer, check out their pizza, check out all the shit they do. The information contained in this podcast is for entertainment use only. Please don't take a single word these two assholes say seriously. I'm Thad. I'm Brad. And we are the Evil Twin Podcast. Well, what's the goal here? To continue making as much money as they can for as long as they can before they get busted. First of all, props to you for knowing about the Septuagint and the Vulgate. Yeah. So I'm beyond third grade? Wait. <laughs> we're, we're saying first year graduate school here. Like, that was, that was impressive. Yeah. Some of the most compelling theories of personal identity rooted essentially in your preferences, your likes, your dislikes, your experiences, your memories. That's, that's essentially who you are. That's all you are. And then the most unexpected to me... But delightful, this emergence of ayahuasca. In understanding the self, or in creating an image of the self, we also create an image of the other or the not-self simultaneously. So we, we create subject and object in the same moment. But really, this teaches us that we create our own environments, that we gravitate toward those things in our environments that please us based on who we are genetically speaking. You know, in yoga, people say namaste, the Sanskrit word for the divine in me honors the divine in you. It's the same concept. When enough of us live from our ruach, from our divine connection, we can't help but repair the world. Welcome to the Evil Twin Podcast. What's up? Not much, man. Just back. Just back again, Just ladies back and here. gentlemen. Thank you for uh, listening to us week after week. We appreciate it. If if this isn't the first time you've listened to us, if you've if you've been a continuous listener, we appreciate that. Um, we we have a mission to continuously make this podcast better, so that's always our goal. And this week we are sort of picking up on a series that yep. we started, um, you know, back in January. And uh, this is our topic for the week is DMT. Yep. And this is going to be the second part in that series. So if you haven't listened to the first part, listen to that. Yeah. And then come back and listen. In to the this. first part, we had an amazing mm -hmm. guest on, man. We, mm -hmm. we basically had 
a guy who represents kind of the epicenter of this kind of sort of modern knowledge of of DMT, Rick Strassman, who wrote the book um, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which mm-hmm. was then a documentary was made after. You should check that out on Netflix if you haven't yet. And um, that was an awesome interview for us because it really helped us kind of go to the source, if you will, of mm-hmm. this whole DMT phenomenon. And if you haven't heard about DMT, listen to that episode, get a little bit of a base of what we're talking about, and then come back to listen to this. Or just listen to this, either yeah. way. And also understand that um, in that episode, Dr. Strassman um, has, you know, he's released recently his, his latest book, um, and it is a comparison between ancient Hebrew prophecy and the DMT experience. Right. And so in this episode, we're going to be taking a little bit different um, angle yeah. and different approach on the thing because um, we'll probably be talking a lot more about shamanism, yeah. which is something that Dr. Strassman seemed to sort of poo-poo a little bit. Yeah. And if you haven't listened to that episode, let's just give the listener just a really quick um, kind of short synopsis of what dmt is okay so basically dmt is a substance that's made in the human body it's a very simple chemical compound um i'm not a scientist so don't fucking ask me to explain it to you (laughs) but it's it's made in several parts of the body Mm -hmm. um specifically i think in the lungs um different parts of the brain specifically the pineal pineal gland I never know if it's pineal or pineal. Or I think it's pineal. Whatever. It's also a cousin to serotonin. Yeah. So it does have some sort of similar action in the brain as serotonin. But this, this chemical is also produced in many other... I think all mammals produce this chemical mm-hmm. along with many, if not most, other plants and, and trees and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a very common molecule found all over the world. Um, <clears throat> but when taken... Um, in the form of a vaporized um, product or a, a tea-type beverage. Mm-hmm. There's various ways that you can actually take this chemical. Um, it gives you basically what is described as the strongest, most intense hallucinogenic psychedelic experience known to mankind. Mm-hmm. And um, if you haven't heard the previous podcast, my brother and I have actually done the uh, one of the versions of this chemical called 5-MeO-DMT. Um, several times and we so we have our own personal experiences that we talked about mm-hmm. in previous podcasts as well yeah and our experience with in in dmt the the dmt that people generally are right. re- referring to when they talk about it um is limited and right. so that's uh, another reason why we wanted to have this conversation i don't know if i really want to do it to be honest with you yeah um i don't know if i you know maybe no you're gonna do it um but you know at least we wanted to talk to you know the the greatest experts that we could get to come on the show yeah. to discuss it. So. And one of the greatest experts of all time, his name was Terrence McKenna. Yep. They called him the Bard. Mm-hmm. He basically was a guy back in the 80s and 90s who had almost like a one-man revolution going where he would go around and give these speeches and he had many books that he wrote and he had recorded all of this stuff that you can find all over the internet today where he talks about his experiences with DMT and not just DMT, but psychedelics in general. Mm-hmm. And he, he and his brother Dennis had many adventures all over the world, specifically in the Amazon. And um, 
they've written books about it as well together. Mm -hmm. And today we're fortunate enough to have Terrence McKenna's brother, Dennis McKenna, on the podcast, Mm -hmm. which we could not be more excited about because both Brad and myself have been fans of his for quite some time. Quite a long time. Dennis or uh, Terrence McKenna died in in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of he had a lot of theories and things that have have been floating around out there. But the thing I think that um, with us, the thing that we most enjoyed listening to him talk about was DMT. Yeah. Well, I mean, when he starts talking about it, just the language that he uses Mm -hmm. is so beautiful. It's very poetic. Mm -hmm. And he has an ability to kind of describe the experience in a way that nobody before him had. Yeah. Um, and, And a very unique perspective on the experience of taking this molecule. Yep. And he became very famous because of it within, within the world of the psychedelic yeah, world. The psychedelic world. And, um, his brother Dennis is kind of like the science more. I, maybe he's more like the scientist. Would you say? Yeah. I, you know, I think they were both fairly scientific. Yeah. Um, but Dennis specifically, I mean, he's a professor at a university. He's a researcher. He does all kinds of stuff. You yeah. Know, he's, 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 he's very much a scientist. Yeah. But, he does come at this from more of a shamanic perspective. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to him about that. Because one of the things that we want to talk about at, in a future podcast is ayahuasca specifically. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll dip into that and talk about that a little bit with Dennis today. Um, but it sounds to me like he goes down to the uh, rainforest in yeah. Peru quite a bit mm-hmm. to do research. Yeah. And so I want to talk to him a lot about that. Too. Yeah, I'm really interested in what he's got going on down there and what kind of research he's doing, you know, or does he just go down there and chill? Right. He might just go down there and do ayahuasca. <laughs> I have no idea. Who knows? But let's uh, let's give him a, a formal introduction here. Yeah. Dennis McKenna's professional and personal interests are focused on the interdisciplinary study of ethnopharmacology and plant hallucinogens. He received his doctorate in 1984 from the University of British Columbia, where his doctoral research focused on ethnopharmacological investigations of botany, chemistry, and pharmacology of ayahuasca. Dr. McKenna received postdoctoral research fellowships in the Laboratory of Clinical Pharmacology, National Institute of Mental Health, and in the Department of Neurology, Stanford University School of Medicine. He joined Shaman Pharmaceuticals as director of ethnopharmacology in 1990 and relocated to Minnesota in 1993 to join the Aveda Corporation as senior research pharmacologist. Mm. He has tons of publications, tons of, uh, you know, scientific, um, articles and publications that he has, and he's written a number of very popular books. Um, one of the latest of which I have sitting right here, it is called the brotherhood of the screaming abyss. And it's about, um, a big part of it is about his early investigation of mushrooms and some of the early trips he took down to uh, South America with his brother Terrence and, and some of the shenanigans they got into down there. It's a great book. It's interesting. There's lots of pictures of him and Terrence when they were kids. And uh, so I would recommend this book to anyone. Yeah. So without further ado, here's Dennis McKenna. Hello, hello. Hello, Dr. McKenna. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. Well, thanks for coming on to the show, Dennis. We really appreciate uh, you agreeing to come on. Uh, we have a humble little show here, but we are we are growing at a pretty decent rate. So, um, one of the things we talk about is psychedelics, and that's the reason why we we really wanted to come to you because obviously you're uh, kind of at the epicenter of all this. 
and um, our podcast tends to uh, have a lot to do with the, the adventures that my brother and I uh, kind of take. Part of what we do is we actually go experience things. Like we've been hypnotized and uh, mm-hmm. we've gone to see a psychic and we've, we went to an alien convention. And, we had a seance and yeah. we went to a Scientology place. And, yeah. So we tend well, to. I can, I can recommend a very nice little mission town in uh, Colombia that you guys should go to. Nice. Uh, I think sometime. we might have to take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> but But one of the things that we find interesting is, you know, your your experiences obviously with your brother and um one of your more recent books it might is it the most recent book the brotherhood of the screaming abyss yes yes it is my most recent book it's not that recent it came out in 2012 but but it's the most recent one that i wrote and yeah it's the brotherhood of the screaming abyss and just to plug it people that want you can get it on amazon or you can go to the website by the same name and i'll send you a signed copy and Nice. So shameless self-promotion. Nice. We, we like that. Got that out of the way. <laughs> well, so. we have a copy of it right here, and I wish I had it signed. So I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we'll send it. And... Yeah, send it to me. I'll sign it. Or yeah. order another one. That's what you uh, That's probably what we should do. <laughs> right. So based on all these experiences that you had, how do you, how do you think you guys survived all that? How did we, how did we survive? <laughs> yeah, how did you well, survive? Well, you know, sometimes I wonder. I mean... <laughs> We, uh, we were, you know, when we went to the Amazon in 71, we really didn't have a clue of what we were doing, what we were, you know, I mean, I mean, you have to understand, I was, I, in 71, I was 20, and my brother was 24, we were very young, and we were just at that stage of life where you think you know everything, and actually you know nothing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? You haven't and learned so that part had, yet. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, delusions and illusions about our expertise and what we were looking for, but actually we didn't have, um, you know, we really didn't know. And so we were, you know, there were surprises. And, and that's really what my brother's last book, True Hallucinations, is about and what the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss is about. How did we survive? We were damn lucky, <laughs> you know, is basically what it comes down to. We made every mistake in the book. And I think that... Um, I just think we were lucky. I think that, you know, if ever you need evidence that, uh, you know, God looks after fools and, and children, I think this is proof of that. You know? <laughs> uh, the universe was kind to us and it put us through incredible experiences, but ultimately we came out and, uh, you know, much wiser people, I yeah. hope, and, and also, uh, you know, humbler in some ways because we do you know, what we went through gives us an appreciation of, you know, in a sense, how lucky we are to have gone through that and still, you know, be more or less together in <laughs> yeah. some ways. Um, yeah. So how did we survive? I have no idea. We, were, must, we were lucky. <laughs> you must have had some good people around you protecting you. Ah, <clears throat> uh, yeah. I don't know if it was people exactly, but... Mm, Spirit, something, we say. yeah, yeah, okay, intelligences or something. I mean, the people that actually, uh, you know, accompanied us to La Chirera at that time are friends, good friends of ours, but they were they were as clueless as we were in a certain sense, off on a 
you know, sort of mad hippie psychedelic adventure. Uh, but then when things began to get more serious and, and, and even more strange, you know, they were kind of appalled. I mean, they, they stepped back from it. Wow. So what do you think was more challenging, the actual physical adventure itself or the adventures themselves or the psychedelic adventures? What do you think was the bigger challenge? Well, it's hard to say. I, I think that, I mean, uh, I think the psychedelic adventures were the most difficult. I mean, the the physical part of going to La Chirera and going across this trail, that was difficult enough, you know, but we were we were young at the time and we weren't exactly athletes or anything. We weren't like fitness trainers, but <laughs> I guess we had the resilience and the strength of the young. So, you know, we could put up with hardship of travel and that sort of thing a lot more than I could do it today. I mean, I'm sure if I tried to go back there, uh, you know, the same way I went then, I probably wouldn't. <laughs> and, Thank God I have no reason to go to La Chirera. So, you know, it's no reason to go back. I don't think it it's anything like it was anyway at, the, at that time. So, yeah. You still go down to Peru a lot, though, right? <clears throat> I do. Um, I go down there fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I have done research down there. And I, and I organize these ayahuasca retreats. Uh, down there in Yerobamba, uh, in the Sacred Valley. And, uh, yeah, I find uh, lots of reasons to go, lots of excuses to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love Peru, and it, it's a wonderful country. And it's a lot easier to travel in, well, now, I, I guess you could say, than it was back then. I mean, we didn't go to Peru, but I, I sort of... You know, when I started my graduate work in 1981, I shifted my focus from Colombia to Peru. At the time, you couldn't really, Colombia was a dangerous place to travel, not so much anymore. But but then I just kept going back to Peru because that was the site of my research and, you know, and interest in, in the Amazon. Mm. There isn't really a you know, there really should be another country called Amazonia or something like that, because, you know, irrespective of borders, kind of the cultural milieu, uh, you know, includes the Peruvian Amazon, the Colombian, you know, southern Colombia, uh, Ecuador, and uh, western Brazil. All of that is really part of this Amazonian uh, cultural um I don't know what you call it, bubble or something, this Amazonian cultural region. The people are pretty much united by their inhabiting of this area. Yeah, I was going to say, I I doubt the indigenous people care about all those boundaries. Uh, Exactly. I mean, they they don't. uh, They don't care about them. They probably should care more about them mm-hmm. in some ways, and some do because because now you know indigenous people are not fenced off from the west of the rest of the world so so you know like government policy really impacts these people about how land is to be used, and that you know the government makes decisions they want to move people around, move them out of their uh you know, natural uh, ancestral homes and so on. 
um, they can do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the indigenous people are really under a lot of pressure because the, you know, the decisions that are made at the top levels of government, they're not really about, you know, they're, they're not about their well-being exactly. The decisions are based on where's the gold, where's mm -hmm. the the uh you know the oil what it's it's all based on kind of economic criteria and it's a shame in some ways because what is what they are sacrificing is the tradition and the you know the the coherence of these societies and and the knowledge that they have you know have from having lived in the jungle for so long these are the only people that really understand how the jungle works and what what the resources are and so on. So this is, you know, this is a, this is as valuable as anything that might be in the ground or timber, but it's harder to put a, a dollars and cents, uh, you know, figure on it. So it mm -hmm. doesn't get the attention that it should get, uh, you know, and then governments, of course, and corporations, they have their own agendas. So uh, it's a tricky political situation down there. Yeah, it sounds a lot like America in a certain sense. Like the, the priorities are completely, uh, you know, messed up and and focused on the wrong things. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So you and your brother um, Terence, you seem to have taken uh, slightly different trajectories. He kind of became a little bit of a, a psychedelic guru of sorts, and and uh, it seems like you focused more on research and on on science. Um, were you always more analytical than he, or or is it just sort of what happened? No, I would say, I would say that I was always more inclined toward that. Mm -hmm. Although when we were younger, you know, Terrence was, he was also a good amateur scientist. I mean, he liked to collect things and he was very good at that. And, and when we were growing up, that was kind of, you know, that was kind of what you did. And, and, um, the idea of being a naturalist, uh, somebody who, you know, is in, integrated into nature and making collections is kind of the, you know, the quintessential like 19th century naturalist thing to do. They go out and they collect plants, animals, you know, in Terrence cases, it, it was butterflies. He was a very good butterfly collector. Hmm. In when we were kids, he collected rocks and fossils and all this stuff. So the idea of doing, making collections, which is kind of an antiquated idea now, uh, but I, th I think an unfortunate one because, you know, you, you, you might have the idea that we've collected everything there is to collect and that's just not the case. There's still a lot in the natural world that is unknown to us, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but anyway, so he, he did that and I was more, I guess I was more of a hands-on kind of person in some ways when it come to, came to science. But, but then after, um, we went to La Chirera and came back. Um, I sort of, in some ways, I sort of retreated into science, you know. I mean, I, I didn't exactly retreat, but it was like the stuff that we grappled with was so out there and on the fringe that I sort of enjoyed being able to step back into, back from it a little, back into a you know, an apparently real world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 
you know, just, and so science in that way became a, uh, a refuge for me. And, uh, and Terrence, you know, we came back with two different uh, sort of perspectives on science, which was, I mean, I mean, Terrence's perspective after all that had happened to us was, you know, science is never going to answer this question. There is no scientific explanation for what happened to us. And therefore, science is useless, right? Mm. And we should just reject science. And mm. he's always been a very harsh critic of science in some ways. And and I am not, I don't agree with that. I mean, I am not a, uh, I am very aware of the limitations of science and I think those experiences in, in South America and, and just psychedelic experiences generally, you know, kind of puts that into your face. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that science is inherently limited uh, in terms of what it does understand, what it can understand, this kind of thing. But that said, it's also a very useful tool for understanding and asking questions of nature. Um, I mean, there's nothing quite like it in terms of being able to frame hypotheses or which are really just understandings of how something is and then actually evaluate that in a way that you can verify or not, you know, so that's a powerful thing. So I, my attitude was different from him in the sense that I just said, well, let's let's not be too hasty to throw science under the bus you know it still has things to contribute to this and it, in fact it does and i mean as we've as we've seen uh you know as the psychedelic research has sort of undergone a renaissance uh, you know so when i went back to south america in 1981 i went to peru to do my graduate work in some ways, that was a redemption for me, or that was a um, that was an effort to have a self validation because it was it was me going as a graduate student to do, you know, to do real science rather than a deluded hippie running off in 1971 to look for, you know, the mystery, whatever it was. It wasn't that exciting as 1971, but I was able to go down and do you know, some good science, essentially ethnobotanical work. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a validation, uh, you know, just being able to go and, and function and get stuff done uh, was reassuring to me. And that kind of set me on the path, uh, you know, on the scientific side. Um, yeah. So could you just for our listeners, um, just briefly explain what um, ethnopharmacology is? Oh, most, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because most it, people probably haven't heard of that or understand what, what it is the study of. Right, right. Well, it's a big word, mm -hmm. uh, but you can divide it into two. Ethno, ethno means people, right? So like ethnography, ethnicity, all this ethno means people. Pharmacology means the study of drugs. So ethnopharmacology is essentially the study of how people uh, use drugs. Um, so it's like ethnobotany, same kind of thing. How do people use plants? Ways that people use plants, which might range from medicines to clothing to dyes and to construction materials 
crops, foods, all this stuff is is uh, is about people using using plants in different ways. Well, pharmacology, ethnopharmacology is a little more restricted um, because you're focused on on uh, on pharmacology. On uh, well, I can give you the formal definition. Sure. If you <laughs> the formal definition, and there's a reason why it's so tortured which I'll explain, but the formal definition is ethnopharmacology is the interdisciplinary scientific investigation of biologically active substances used or observed by humans. (laughs) So that's a lot, that's a tortured definition, but it's a, it's important because for one thing, it's not always about plants, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, In other words, Biologically active substances come from many sources in nature, and ethnopharmacology might study arrow poisons, for example, mm. uh, or other types of toxins, fish poisons, or, uh, you know, so biologically active substances, not necessarily plant-derived, uh, and then used or observed, that's the other thing. Arrow poisons is a good example, not something that people ingest, at least deliberately, mm. but very interesting chemistry and actually applications in medicine and that sort of thing. But, you know, so it's something that is observed uh, that indigenous people used. And, and then the other aspect of it is usually traditional use. I think yeah. I left that up the de- definition because, in other words, focusing on more or less indigenous indigenous uses of biologically active substances. Yeah, I was going to ask about the history of 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 that and how that related to it. Um, how long do you think people have been? So we're mostly talking about DMT today. So how how long do you think people have been aware, at least you know, either indigenous cultures or otherwise, of of DMT? Well, um, in indigenous cultures. Um, they've been aware of it for a long time mm-hmm. uh, and not necessarily knowing that it was DMT, but they've yeah. been using DMT containing uh, plants for a long time. Uh, in fact, in the form of the snuffs, the snuffs in used in South America derived primarily uh, from a plant called uh, Anadenanthera. It's a legume. It's not actually a jungle plant. It's a grassland, kind of a savanna plant. But it has been used as a snuff in South America for at least ten thousand years. Wow. You know, and this we know. This is very solidly documented because we found snuff trays and carved snuff trays and tubes at archaeological sites like Corral and Tebonacu and some of the older sites there that are dated solidly back that far. And so these people were using snuffs for sure. Um, And so that's very ancient. Um, The more recent history of DMT, um, also interesting, um, you know, of course, Richard Spruce was the first, one of the first uh, Western botanist explorers to really, report on ayahuasca and ayahuasca i think his first report was around 1853 so it came to the attention of science about then but it wasn't until 1968 that actually 
graduate students of Schultes collected the admixture plants that were used in ayahuasca, and they turned out to contain DMT. Mm-hmm. And so then the connection was made that, oh, yeah, this is the basis of DMT pharmacology, right? The, the vine inhibits the enzyme monoamine oxidase in the gut that normally would destroy DMT. It's, that's why DMT is not orally active. So you make a combination of these two, one with DMT and the other with these uh, beta-carbolines. And so then you have an active preparation. Mm-hmm. But DMT um, itself uh, uh, didn't really get onto the radar until the mid-50s. I mean, it was synthesized by a Canadian chemist back around 1936, and he had no idea it was a psychedelic. He was making standards for his chromatography. He was actually looking into, uh, believe it or not, he was looking into things in strawberry roots that he was that he was doing chemistry on. And he synthesized this for his chromatography, put it on the shelf, and forgot about it. And it was not really until the mid '50s that it was understood that it was really. A potent psychedelic, and and the main person responsible for that probably is a guy named Steven Zara. He's uh, he was a uh, Hungarian pharmacologist, but he was working for NIH at the time, and uh, he uh, read reports. He made actually he was working behind the Iron Curtain at that time, and there was a lot of work going on with LSD. He tried to get LSD from Sandoz, but they wouldn't send it to him because he was behind the Iron Curtain. Mm. So then he found out about DMT from some source, uh, and it's easy enough to make. So he made it, and he um, he tried it on himself, and you know he administered it to himself, um, and that was the first really human investigation of DMT. Yeah. Is there uh, any writing about that in- initial uh, trip that he went on? Or yeah, he uh, he published papers about it. Uh, he is uh, he's still kicking. By the way, oh, yes. he's he's alive. Um, he's retired. Obviously, he's like in his mid nineties. Wow. Uh, but as a result of this these experiments and, and many other good things that he did that, uh, you know, as a, as a scientist, he, he actually became head of the, I forget what it was, but some, uh, some fairly high up, uh, agency in the national institutes of mental health. I think he was the director of biologics at that time. So it wasn't a stigma. It wasn't a bad thing that he investigated, uh, DMT, uh, but to your to your question, I should mention there's a very interesting book that came out um, last last summer, uh, and it's called uh, the Mystery School in Hyperspace: A uh, Cultural History of DMT. Have have you heard of that? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, we talked to Dr. Strassman on our okay. first our first. Uh, um, DMT, DMT episode. episode, and yeah. he mentioned that book, and he and he talked a little bit about the uh, the uh, the author. Yeah, it it's an excellent book. Um, 
At least I think so. I wrote the foreword for it, okay. but that that's not why it's excellent. I mean, <laughs> that, that, it was excellent enough that I agreed to write the foreword for it. And Graham St. John, and um, yeah, he's done a, a beautiful job. And it's really a, it, it is the 20th century history of, of DMT. Mm. So um, highly recommend reading that book and, and maybe even interviewing Graham St. John on your show. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I'm sure he'd be happy to come onto yeah. your show. We'll yeah. look into that for sure. Yeah. Now, I've heard you say, you know, I hate to break it to you folks, but we're made of drugs. <laughs> right? That's kind yes. of a quote that you're you're known for. Um, so with that being the case, um, what is a tryptamine and, and why are we made of that? Well, that's just one of a lot of drugs we're made of. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Well, a tryptamine is so. Here's here's the the five minute chemistry lesson in a certain sense. So tryptamine is a derivative of tryptophan. Right, tryptophan is an amino acid, and tryptophan is found in every living thing, as far as we know, because it's one of the twenty amino acids that go into proteins. Right, mm-hmm. um, so tryptophan is is everywhere, and it's an essential amino acid, meaning that we don't make it. Mammals cannot make it. We have to get it from plants, mm-hmm. or we have to get it from other animals that that have eaten plants in order to to get this thing and this is true of most of the important um uh neurotransmitters that are derived from amino acids the other ones being dopamine and norepinephrine same thing they're all essential amino acids so ultimately they come from plants but back to tryptamine so tryptamine is if you take tryptophan and tryptophan being an amino acid, it's got an amino group and an acid group, which in chemistry is called a carboxylic acid group. If you take tryptophan and remove the carboxylic acid, if you if you hydrolyze that, it's no longer an amino acid. It is an amine. It is, in fact, uh, tryptamine. Hmm. <laughs> so tryptophan, tryptamine, okay. all right? Then you got another enzyme that comes along, and what that enzyme's called is sometimes called methyltransferases or N-methyltransferases. And it's interesting in biochemistry, sometimes the, the name of an enzyme tells what it does. N-methyltransferase, if somebody says that to me, I know just enough biochemistry to say, oh, this is an this is something that sticks methyl groups onto nitrogens, right? And so N-methyltransferase comes along and methylates tryptamine on the on the uh, well, there are two nitrogens, but it it, it methylates the nitro the side chain nitrogen, if you want to put it that way. So then you've got dimethyltryptamine, two mm-hmm. methyls, dimethyltryptamine. So DMT is only two steps from tryptophan, something that's found in everything. And actually, DMT is found probably not in everything, but but pert near everything, um, you know, at some level, uh, not in useful quantities particularly. But, but it probably, because it is so close to primary 
metabolism, it's probably, you know, present. I wouldn't be surprised if it was present in small amounts in just about every plant that that you might point to, because because the enzymes that make it are, you know, not rare or anything. They're universal um, enzymes that are involved in cellular processes of all sorts. So. Mm. So DMT is everywhere. I sometimes say in my lecture, nature is drenched in DMT. Mm-hmm. And so, it's true. I mean, there are thousands and thousands and probably tens of thousands uh, of plants that, that do contain high levels of DMT. So what's the purpose of it in, in our body then? What, what is it for? Oh, well, that, <laughs> that is a much tougher question. <laughs> <laughs> and and nobody really knows, you know, why. I mean, it does DMT does occur in our body. Uh, it's made the enzymes that make it in plants. The those same enzymes, similar enzymes, are also in our body. And it's not clear what it's doing there. It's you know, there's much speculation about about what its functions might be. Uh, it's remarkable in well, I don't know if you've read Dr. Strassman's book, there's a lot of speculation about what endogenous DMT might be doing. Yeah. Uh, it's involved with pineal functions, uh, you know, the regulation of sleep and waking. It may be, as Rick has speculated, that it may be released uh, in massive quantities uh, under stress conditions such as birth and death um you know pretty much the two most stressful Mm -hmm. uh, events anybody's ever going to undergo and we know that under stress the tissues that the well it's not so much the brain that synthesizes dmt actually the lungs are probably the most important area of the body where DMT is synthesized. Those enzymes are there in high quantities. But then when it's endogenous DMT is then taken up into the brain by active transport. Um, So it may be that, uh, you know, the near-death experience, for Mm -hmm. example, is, is a reflection of essentially the brain becoming flooded with DMT at the moment of death. Um, And interestingly, there is a, uh, there's another investigator, a guy named Edi Frexa, another Polish guy um, who is, who worked with uh, Steven Zara back in the day, uh, but is, is much younger than Steven and he's still actively working he came up with a very interesting idea, uh, which is verifiable. Um, it's a pretty wild idea, but he was basically one of one of the things that's known about DMT. It's a very good um, antioxidant, and mm. so things that are antioxidants can be neuroprotective. So when you have a stroke or you have a heart attack, the you know, there is a moment in that crisis moment where your brain starts to die slowly due to lack of oxygen, right? Because the brain needs oxygen, lots of oxygen. If it doesn't get it, that 
conditions called hypoxia, then the nerve the the nerve cells begin to die off. Mm. And Ed's uh, speculation is that when that happened, when when you're under cardiac arrest, the lungs start cranking out DMT in massive quantities, and it is transported into the brain um, as a neuroprotective mm. strategy and to preserve the brain during this period of anoxia. And he's actually speculated that, you know, if you had, you know, preloaded syringes of DMT on the crash cart, um, somebody has a cardiac arrest, you might be able to actually, you know, buy them another 20 to 30 minutes before uh, anoxia kicked in. And wow. so it's a strategy for, you know, essentially uh, avoiding death in this case. I don't know why it should be DMT, but there it is. Yeah. It's a reasonable idea. Um, and and what else it might be doing, it's not clear, yeah. you know. Um, I think um, it's interesting that the lungs um, are part of the responsibility of the DMT. And it, it almost makes you wonder if, uh, like, meditation... Or, you know, focused breathing exercises or things like that can help, like, trigger that. Well, yeah, quite possibly. I mean, quite possibly. There are um, forms of yoga, you know, there are forms of tantric yoga where, you know, if, if if you compare what they describe to what we know about DMT physiology, that it is essentially bringing... It's essentially activating the pineal gland, and the pineal gland is completely capable of synthesizing DMT. Mm-hmm. And so these yogic practices can, you know, bring this energy up the chakras to the the uh, the third eye, mm-hmm. and the third eye is analogous to the pineal gland, and open the third eye into you know, these visionary places. So, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that, uh, that that's what's going on. There's also, uh, a, uh, I guess you, I don't know what you call it, a spiritual practice or, you know, a, a, a way to achieve enlightenment without drugs, but mm-hmm. sort of with drugs, which is, uh, which is dark therapy. Um, People spend, under these protocols, people spend prolonged periods in total darkness. Mm. And it's thought to stimulate the production of endogenous DMT. In other words, after a while, they start to (laughs) see and hear things, right? (laughs) Obviously, (laughs) Maybe they're just losing it, or maybe there's a physiological, you know basis for all that again a reasonable idea that this could uh, that that this could be going on yeah. well my brother and i have actually experienced the uh, 5-meo um, uh-huh. experience on a few occasions and um but we've never done the in and dmt yeah mm-hmm. and but what is not from a psychedelic experience perspective but can you explain to the audience what like chemically speaking, what the difference between NNDMT and 5-MeO is? Uh, sure. Um, I think a lot of people get that kind of confused. I think a lot of people think there's only one kind. And Right, right. Well, so we go back to our chemistry lesson for a minute. So you got tryptophan. Tryptophan gets methylated, or tryptophan gets d 
decarboxylated and you get tryptamine. And tryptamine gets methylated and you've got dimethyltryptamine, right? And then that from there, depending on what organism it's in and what enzymes are in play, that really spawns a whole family of chemical uh, relatives, right? One of those is psilocin, the active alkaloid in mushrooms, right? Mm -hmm. So psilocin is very close to DMT. It's 4-hydroxy DMT. It's got a hydroxyl group on the indole ring, uh, and that makes it just different enough from DMT that it's actually orally active by itself. Mm. doesn't require an MAO inhibitor, and psilocin is derived from psilocybin. Everyone knows psilocybin, but psilocin is the active form. Psilocybin is what pharmacologists call a prodrug. It's converted to the active form in the body, mm-hmm. and it's very readily, uh, you know, the phosphoryl group of psilocin, psilocybin is removed, and you get psilocin. So that's one of the derivatives of, you know, this sort of family of psychedelic psilocin. 5-methoxy is another one where instead of putting a hydroxyl group on HO or an alcohol group on the indole in the four position, you put a, what's called a methoxy, a group that is a a methyl and an oxygen together. You stick that on the five position. If I had a diagram or a chart, (laughs) it would be easier to understand. But it's basically a kind of tryptamine derivative with a methoxy group in position five. Hmm. Now, what that does is it does several things. For one thing, 5-methoxy is about 10 times more potent on a weight gram for gram, milligram for milligram basis compared to DMT. So if a full dose of DMT is... 60, 70 milligrams, 5-methoxy might be closer to 10. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Similarly, it's very short, uh, like DMT, unless you take it with an MAO inhibitor. Um, but if you snort it or smoke it, um, then it's very short. It's not very visual, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. People, most people do not see visions on 5-methoxy DMT. Uh, but what they do tend to see is it's like somebody has said it's like going back to the zero energy point. It's mm-hmm. like it's like it's beyond the visionary realm. It's kind of in this place that's unique to itself. You know, mm-hmm. I I don't know what the I don't know what you call it the the ultimate uh, you know something like nirvana mm-hmm, actually. Yes, yeah. is that your experience is that very yeah. much so yeah. yeah yeah i've heard it called like unification with the divine i've heard it you know compared to moksha um zero point these, field this idea of of enlightenment sort of like the feeling of what what that would be like um and that's what i would you know i would i would agree with that yeah. i like to call it the moment because huh. mm-hmm. to me it was like i was wit it was like i was i was the moment i was witnessing this moment of perfection where mm-hmm. everything was perfectly unified, you know, everything mm-hmm. was love, everything was light, everything was unified. Mm-hmm. It was per, it was like perfection. I don't know. That's yeah. 
Well, I think that's, I think a lot of people, that's essentially the experience they have of it, you know? Um, And uh, my own experience with it has been fairly limited, but it's been similar to that. Definitely a feeling of unity, cosmic oneness, all that stuff, you know, which you can get on DMT, um, but not quite to the same extent. The bonus is that on DMT, you, you get a much stronger hallucinatory component, uh, you know, very, very strong visions, mm-hmm. uh, three-dimensional geographic, geometrical visions. And sometimes, as Terence famously has said, you know, elf machines mm-hmm. or, you know, visual things that appear to be entities, although they're quite alien compared to anything in our world. Um, I didn't get that so much with 5-methoxy DMT, but with DMT, it's it's quite it's it's pretty much characteristic of uh, how it is. Mm. Um, so uh, you've had I take it you've you've eaten mushrooms on yeah. occasion. We actually yeah. did an episode on the podcast about that <laughs> last summer. <laughs> okay, yeah. So you know, yeah, you know what they are like, and yeah. the, the, the quality of the hallucinations on DMT are very similar to to high doses of psilocybin. I mean, Mm. it is the same place. It's the, you know, it's the tryptamine dimension and they all get you there more or less. Uh, Yeah. So, so it's, yeah. I mean, there, there are other, other um, derivatives. There's like bufotenine, which is, so if DMT, if, if, you got DMT, you've got 5-methoxy DMT, where you've got a methoxy substitution at the 5 position. Well, bufotenine, you've got the hydroxy substituent mm. in the 5 position. So if you took psilocin and you moved the hydroxy group over one position on the ring, then you would have bufotenine, oh, wow. which mm. is found in the in the toads. In the to- It's found in plants as well, but... Mm. It's famous for being found in toad skin, um, which is why it's called bufotenine after the genus bufo. Yeah. Yes, we know a little bit about those bufo toads ourselves. <laughs> oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> why am I not surprised? <laughs> okay. So what, um, is there any new information that's come out about DMT over the last number of years? Well, yeah, there is. Um, again, this fellow uh, E.D. Frexa has done a lot of publishing about it, and also a researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, Nick Cozy. Uh, and it seems that, uh, you know, DMT, it is produced endogenously, and the question is, what what is it doing there? Does it have a function? A lot of people have been trying to focus on its psychedelic functions, and it's in some ways it's a harder case to make because, you know, for us that's what's most impressive about DMT. Mm-hmm. Turns out endogenously it may have other functions. It, there's a uh, another set of receptors that it interacts with, the sigma receptors, and the sigma one receptors. DMT has been shown to be uh, a ligand, is the term. It binds to these receptors. Sigma-1 has a really wide range of 
activities. It, it, it modulates all sorts of things in cellular systems, uh, particularly the immune response. Mm. So it may have something to do with immune function. Um, mm. ED's doing a beautiful job showing that, you know, it does have uh, functions in the brain, like this idea that it's produced under stress. Uh, yeah, it's worth looking at his at his uh, at his publications. Okay. One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about was um, shamanism in general. Um, when we we spoke to uh, Dr. Strassman, you know, he has this new book, DMT and the the Spirit of Prophecy or the Soul of Prophecy, and mm -hmm. he, he compares sort of the um, ancient Hebrew, the experience of ancient Hebrew prophecy to the DMT experience, and he goes into that, and um, mm -hmm. he also he also seems to sort of veer away from shamanism a little bit. You know, he said that, um, that he feels like shamanism has some shortcomings and that isn't quite suited for like Western people. Um, and so I was wondering about that. You know, I, I know that you're probably more on the side of shamanism with your experience in South America and stuff. And I was, I was wondering what, what your thoughts were on that. Well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what he sees as the shortcomings of shamanism. Um, well, he said a couple things specifically. He said um, when it comes to, uh, well, it comes from a preliterate culture, um, so it wouldn't be applicable to the West. And then he also said it, it tends to focus on spirits rather mm -hmm. than than God. And he said, you know, if we're if we're looking at DMT from a spiritual perspective, it'd be good if the spiritual perspective contained the vocabulary and concepts of the reigning paradigm, which I think he was talking about, you know, sort of judo, uh, Judeo-Christian. Judeo-Christian. Well, you know, I don't know. I would have to disagree with most of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think that... Uh, you know, I, th I think that Rick is writing from within the perspective of the Ju Judeo-Christian heritage, mm -hmm. and he's trying to relate that back to DMT and to his own experiences of DMT, both you know as as a scientist and some of the frustrations that he had uh, with his own spiritual community, which was actually a Buddhist community mm -hmm. who were not too happy that he was doing this research. And I think that Rick's book is kind of a, it's a personal thing. It's an attempt to reconnect with his own family and his own historical religious tradition. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I have a hard time finding, you know, finding where DMT, you know, fits into that. And to my mind, well, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm biased, I guess. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I'm, I'm anti-religious and I'm, I'm particularly, you know, unfriendly to the Judeo-Christian religion because uh -huh. I don't think, you know, I think that this is historically it's been a force to... Uh, you know, to uh, prevent people from having genuine spiritual experiences or mystical experiences. They're mm -hmm. sort of, you know, trying to uh, keep you uh, one step away from that. So it's a very priest-oriented, hierarchical uh, kind of thing. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, you know, I know what to, what to say about mm -hmm. that. You know, it is... I mean, so Rick Rick has this idea about about God, which is presumably 
something outside, something that's out there, the mm-hmm. sort, of, sort of monotheistic perspective. Uh, shamans inhabit a world of spirits, a world of magic. I actually think that's much closer to what one experiences on DMT, mm-hmm. you know, all these entities and all that. If you're a, if you're a, you know, modern post-scientific um, 20th century, 21st century person, you, you know, you might see aliens, they might present as aliens or elf machines or whatever. And they often do in the, you know, DMT is a very sort of science fiction ish kind of thing in the indigenous, uh, environment. You see, you encounter similar entities, but you don't interpret them as aliens necessarily. You interpret them as spirits. Hmm. <coughs> Who knows where they come from? You have this idea of where they come from, you know. And then the question comes up: Are these things real or not? Right. You know what you experience. This is also, to my mind, a red herring in some ways because. You know, it's it's like, well, are they real? Well, you could say, well, real enough, you know, in the sense that they apparently are real. Um, you experience them as real, uh, and your response to them is as though they were real, in the sense that you're getting getting information from these entities, which you would like to trust. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of sometimes it's unassumed. Um, and so it, in a way, it doesn't really matter if it's real, you know. But but that said, then you always have to think, well, is this something that's out there that is a separate world, a separate dimension that somehow these things gives give us a way to, you know, part the curtains and, and poke our heads through, mm-hmm. you know, or is it something that, comes out of us ultimately and presents as something it comes from the self but it presents to us as something that is not the self right yeah when i had my experience on especially my first experience on 5meo right before that i would say that i was like um kind of a materialist atheist sort of guy where i kind of Mm -hmm. pretty much just believed in the things that i could see and touch and feel and then right. I had this experience on 5-MEO, and it's like, seriously, right? When I came back from that, I was like, well, I guess that whole thing is fucked. I have no <laughs> idea what it is. And it seems like all everything is pointing in towards the same thing anyway. So, you know. Yeah, know. might have to rethink. I might have this. to rethink everything. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. So how... So I, think, oh, go I ahead. think that's an important lesson to take away. I mean, I'm in that position as well. I, I mean, I'm not exactly... You know, I, I, well, I don't know if I'm an atheist. I'm kind of a, a reductionist. I've come out of that. But I think one of the things that the psychedelics teach you is that, you know, we there's a lot about the world that we don't know. I think that's maybe one of the main take-home lessons to, you know, never forget. And if you do forget, I, the psychedelic, will remind you, never forget how little you know. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a good thing to keep in mind, you know, because we we don't know a lot. And I think the world's a lot more marvelous than, uh, than it appears on yeah. the surface. I mean, there are layers and layers of, of mystery to existence. So, yeah. 
that's that's one of the main things I've with every psychedelic I've ever done. When I come back, I, I not only am I in awe of the experience itself, but I appreciate just the reality of the simple reality of this world and how mm-hmm. like we're just experiencing this crazy reality, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, it's nice to go and it's even better to come home. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so yeah. that was one of the things I said after our, our, uh, our mushroom experience last summer was like, you know what? There's, there's nothing better than the sober mind. There's nothing superior than just this sober human consciousness. Right. But sometimes you have to go so far away from that in order to fully appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's good to remember and occasionally remind yourself from the experience. There's, like I say, layers and layers of of experience, and you know, and in fact, the world is a lot more miraculous and interesting than we think. I mean, but that said, it's nice to be oriented in space and time. You know, I mean, that's where we need to be most of the time. My argument or my bone to pick, if you want to put it that way, is, you know, with people that never look beyond that. You yeah. know, they never look over the edge. They never look beyond the the curtain, mm-hmm. you know. I was going to ask you, do you know of any research of anybody that's uh, like blind that that's taken DMT? You know, I, I don't, uh, except I do. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually just found out about this uh, a couple of days ago, because this Hmm. has been a question. Somebody sent me something on uh, Facebook. I got something came across the, uh, across the radar on Facebook where some fellow had given his friend who had been congenitally blind since birth uh, with without a damaged neural cor- visual cortex. Apparently the, the blindness was not at the neural level. It was more like damage to the optic nerve, damage to the eyes. So he gave this person DMT, and what do you know? He had a full-blown, fully visual wow. uh, DMT experience. Mm. So I think that's very interesting. That interesting. I, yeah, that's really interesting. I um, don't know if I bookmarked that. Let me see if I can find it. Um, send you the link here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that came up when we were uh, when we were talking to Dr. Strassman, and he hadn't heard of of any um, incidents of that. And we were really curious as to like, you know, if the person would still have uh, visual experiences or. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, y- yes. Uh, apparently, we can answer that question now. Cool. The other thing I'd like to mention, um, if you don't already know about it, is that uh, there's a filmmaker that's been working on. Um, making a documentary called True Hallucinations. And that is out now. And it's actually on YouTube. So if you Google YouTube or go to YouTube and search on Terrence McKenna's True Hallucinations, um, it'll come up. It's a two and a half hour uh, movie. So it's a little long, but it's pretty interesting. Definitely have to check that out. Yeah, let me see. This isn't coming up. This okay. is not coming up. But I'll send you, I'll send you the link about okay. this experiment with the blind guy. Um, yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Yeah, definitely. Very interesting to see. Um, 
Mm, it's not coming up for Okay, me. no problem. <laughs> Sorry. <That's> no problem. <laughs> so, yeah. um, kind of in closing, why, why would you, or, or would you suggest that people try DMT? And um, if so, what, what are they kind of to expect to get out of it? Well, um, again, I think, you know, I think what they'll get out of it is, uh, you know, it will, it will completely, um, in, you know, it will completely invalidate everything you think you know. I mean, that's probably the most useful thing. <laughs> yeah. Just like you took it and you, you had a bunch of ideas about how the world was. You were an atheist, you were a reductionist and, that that whole ontological or epistemological or conceptual structure just got swept away, mm-hmm. you know, and you came back with, well, actually, the world's a lot stranger than I thought. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's an important thing to appreciate, you know, is that, you know, uh, I mean, Terrence was fond of quoting J.B. Haldane, who said, the world is not only stranger than you think it is, stranger than you suppose it's stranger than you can suppose <laughs> and i think that's something that uh you know psychedelics bring to the table they they force you to question your assumptions and uh you know and re- realize that we don't really know very much you know we don't know anything um we get, we understand a tiny fraction of the universe and i think psychedelics are useful for that they remind us how little we know and that's something that uh you know we should all keep in mind and and i think scientists especially should keep it in mind you know because there is a uh, there's a tendency in science to be kind of arrogant and uh you know when people when scientists tell me well, I think we have it all pretty well figured out here. You know, I mean, we've got it nailed down. There's a few little mopping up to do, but basically we understand how the world is. I'm like, not so fast, cowboy, because, you know, next week something could come along that will completely overturn everything you thought you knew. And psychedelics are useful for that on the individual level, because I think, you know, one of the most valuable things they can do is remind us of how little we know. And, and so there's no need for arrogance. You know, there's a great need for humility. And I think that, uh, you know, realizing how little we know, to me, it's not depressing. Some people would say that's very depressing <laughs> to think that we know so little. But to me, that's actually a joyous thing because that means there's a whole lot left to learn Mm -hmm. so discovery and curiosity that's what drives you know that's certainly what drives science and and it's what drives i would say the human experience human cognitive um evolution in some ways it's an attempt to understand the world Mm -hmm. and so you know and and to really understand the world you got to sweep your assumptions aside you know, and and this is why I think, like, if you work within a, say, a religious framework, a dom- dogmatic framework, um, it's not helpful because mm-hmm. you're you're taking certain assumptions on faith, right? You're taking you're assuming the validity 
of that understanding. And I sort of don't have much use for faith. Yeah. You know, I sort of believe that faith is being asked is when someone asks you to believe something that there's no evidence for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think this is perhaps one of the, uh, you know, sort of uh, like with respect to Rick, uh, Rick Strassman's, uh, <coughs> you know, latest idea. I think this is one of the problems with it, you know, in that he is trying to stuff it back into some kind of a framework mm -hmm. uh, of dogma and scripture and understanding because it's personally meaningful to him, but I'm not sure it really fits in there very well. You know, I mean, it should be taken on its own. I, 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 you know what I'm saying? I yeah. don't think um, that it's really, um, well, it, it just doesn't seem to uh, make sense <laughs> to me yeah. based on what we know about these things and, and the psychedelic experience. I'm, I'm not completely sure I understand why he's going the way he is going with this and why he feels compelled to, to do so. Yeah. The guy that gave us uh, our dose of DMT said something kind of interesting the first time we took it. And he said, you don't have to believe you just have to receive. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I have said the same thing. In fact, it's better, you know, if you don't believe because it's, you know, you're not bringing any assumptions to it in a sense. You know, what it takes is courage. Yeah. You know, what it takes is willingness to set your assumptions aside, say, I'm, you know, I know nothing. I'm a curious monkey and I'm going to smoke the pipe or whatever it is. Have that experience and then, then make of it what you will. Then yeah. fit it into your own your own system of understanding of how the world is, you yeah. know, this, this is, uh, so it's very useful in that way. And it, it, I mean, it's good because it encourages, uh, it encourages, uh, people to ask questions and it, it encourages people to think for themselves, mm -hmm. which I think is really an important thing. I mean, this is, this is the thing you know, when, when Terrence, I mean, Terrence is often called a guru, you know, but he would not accept that. Right. He doesn't, you know, his whole shtick was, I'm not a guru. <laughs> you know, think for yourself. I'm just here down with everybody trying to figure out what this is. Gurudom doesn't serve because when somebody tells me they're a guru, I, I immediately think, well, the fact that they can even say that means that they haven't really been thinking about, you know, and yeah. so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you let our uh, listening audience know how to get a hold of you on social media or otherwise? Yeah, well, I am on, on Facebook. Uh, I am probably the easiest way is I have a, a website or a Facebook page mm -hmm. as well as a website, but I have a Facebook page called the brotherhood of the screaming abyss. Most of what I'm up to is going to be on that site okay. sooner or later. It's a closed site, but if you ask, I'll, I don't think we really turn anybody away unless they're selling stuff. <laughs> um, you know, so they can join that group. Uh, and that that's the easiest and simplest way to, get in touch. Great. 
And I would I would encourage everyone to go out and buy this book, The Brotherhood yes, of the Screaming please, Abyss. Please do. <laughs> There's all kinds of amazing pictures of, of Dennis and Terrence when they were young and the whole thing is documented well. So. Yeah, yeah. And just I would say definitely worth everyone's time to watch this thing that just got out, the okay. the true hallucinations. I mean I, I had nothing to do with it i mean i was i was i'm in there an old interview of mine is in there so i had nothing to do with directly with the making of the documentary but i thought he did an excellent job so it's worth a look excellent well thank you very much for coming on and um hopefully we'll talk to you again about ayahuasca or something sounds good all right sounds good thank you thank you thank you very much had a great time thank you very much bye okay Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evil Twin Podcast. To get the full Evil Twin experience, go to eviltwinpodcast.com and follow the guys on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Evil Twin Podcast. If you really want to show your support, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcasts on iTunes. And remember, first of all, I'll see you next time. First of all, I'll see you next time. First of all, I'll see you next time.